The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, I'm excited. Are you guys excited? What's today? What's today? Who knows what today is? Shark Week! That's what I'm talking about. I'm excited. Some of you saw me on Twitter this morning. It's Shark Week today. So uh, it's the most wonderful time of the... I call this Christmas in August. We get to watch Shark Week, and we get to learn once again the lesson that we learn every single time. And that is what? Sharks hate surfers. That's pretty much what the whole show's about. And seals. Um, So... Um, Hey, I'm going to reiterate just a couple of announcements we made because most of you came in after the fact, mainly because we actually started on time today. So um, (laughs) miracles do happen. You're like, man, Jeff is excited to get home to see Shark Week. They started on time. Um, But two of them are really important. Uh, Number one, Jeremy mentioned this uh, outreach we're going to do this week to the firefighters that are... um, just serving our valley and our community by working up mainly at the, uh, I want to say it's the Beaver Complex fire or something like that, I think, up, up this way. Uh, the base camp is at Howard Prairie Lake, and uh, we got an opportunity. We're partnering with uh, uh, a few churches that we're really good friends with. In particular, I'm very close with the pastors of these churches. That's Medford Nazarene Church off McAndrews up on the hill. Um, the uh, Rogue Valley Fellowship, Kenner Gottsman, the pastor there, Westminster Presbyterian, and their pastor, best Presbyterian name ever, Barnabas Sprinkle is their pastor, so uh, <laughs> love that. And then, um, and then also First Baptist Church, um, who is also our landlord, so we're really nice to them. Um, but they, uh, all of us get together about once a month and have lunch, and an opportunity really landed in our lap just out of the blue to minister to them. It'll be under the covering, if you will, of Helping Hands International, which is run by Ron Ashpole. Many of you guys know him. Um, and what we're going to be doing is the church, our, all the churches are contributing money together to be able to buy these resources. Our church and the others, we're all contributing about $500 each. Um, and that will go to buy water, Gatorade, ice cream, sandwiches, anything cold and refreshing that they can get. They're, I think they're taking a snow cone maker even, just anything they can do. And during shift change each evening for the next three nights, they've given us the opportunity to send people up there and just minister to the crews that are going out to the fire and the crews that are coming in. So it's not just about writing a check, but it's about being able to really tangibly thank and bless and pour into the, uh, to the guys that are up there. So if you um, would like an opportunity to do that, we need people to go. Clipboard's right here at my feet. Please come sign this like right away after service, and we're going to be blitzing this as well as our donation over to the guys at Helping Hands International. They'll get a hold of you and talk about shifts. Um, even if you can only do like half of one of those time periods, that's okay. They'll take it, but it, it seems like it'd be a really cool opportunity to go up there and just pour into those guys. So there's that. And then also because of the fires, the uh, high school trip to Lassen has been canceled, as well as a few other things they've had to cancel through the year because of fires. And so we decided to kind of make up for that by really wanting to bless our high school kids so they're going to Disneyland. So, um, but you have to sign up today. It's today, it's now or never. So make sure, parents, don't forget, they have to sign up today at the info table, which if I'm not mistaken is inside the lobby at Cascade. Is that correct? Someone? Yes. So go in there and sign up. The cost for the trip is only $175, which seems like an expensive trip, but you're really just paying for the park pass. 
Um, the church is taking care of transportation and meals and all that kind of stuff and room and, uh, you know, where they're staying. So it's uh, really want to bless our high school kids and give them a good time in light of the stuff that we've had to kind of cancel. Um, and so it's a great trip. So don't forget that. And uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's get right at it. Those of you in the sun, I'm going to go as quick as I can, but there are some seats like on the benches and stuff available. If you get hot, even in the middle of the message and feel like you need to move, just do it. You will not disturb me. That will be fine. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. I'm going to read it and then we'll go. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your testimony. We thank you, Lord, for this light that you have given us. And I pray, God, that as we allow this light to shine at our feet, that it would become a lamp to our entire lives, Lord. That as we go step by step forward, seeking to diligently follow you, to obey you, to understand your scriptures, Lord, that it would lead us to greater lightness in general, Lord. That you would use your word to free people from bondage, from slavery, to remove blinders, to take away veils, to deal with suffering to deal with difficulty and pain, but more importantly, Lord, that your word might give life. So I pray, God, that even in the things that are shared this morning, that the passage we teach would be held true. There would be no tampering with your word, but that you would speak to us by your spirit this morning. And so, Lord, I join, Lord, with your servants of old in saying, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this week, I had the uh, privilege, as you guys know, we've been, we've been meeting out here because Cascade redid their floor, and uh, that's kind of a summer thing that they're going to be doing once a year. Those of you that were here when they did that last year, do not freak out. It's nothing like what they did last year. We could be in there now. Um, last year, we had that smell that just seemed to linger forever. It is nothing like that. Um, we will be back inside. We should be back in there next week and kind of having business as usual. Um, it has forced us to cancel a couple of midweek services, um, but we will be back this Wednesday night in the book of Mark, so I encourage you to join us. We'll be back on this week. Um, but this Wednesday, because we kind of had this uh, sudden free day, if you will, as a staff, we decided to take this as an opportunity to kind of get away and really talk about some sort of big picture things. Excuse me. So um, what we did is we, we got together at someone's house here in town, and, and the staff, we just got together, and we sat out on the porch. It was a really nice, beautiful day. And we spent literally all day sitting out there on this porch talking about um, just sort of the direction where we are, where we're going, where we've been, 
really trying to look at a lot of things such as uh, mission drift. A lot of times you can have a mission. This is what we've set out to do. This is what God's called us to do. But over time, life can get in the way. Things come up. And if we're not careful, you can find that little things have pulled you away from what your mission was. And so we spent a significant amount of time talking about, are there areas where we've drifted? Are there areas where we've got away from that which God has in, embedded in us, in our very DNA as a church, what he's called us to do? And we, we went through every ministry at the church that any of those guys were a part of and talked about. So how does your ministry fulfill the mission of the church? But even in that, we tried to really um, simplify, if you will, the very mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship to, to put together a really short, concise, memorable, something we can reference often kind of mission statement for who we are. And what we've sort of come up with, um, we're, we're going to ratify it soon. We want to meet with the elders and stuff as well. But the idea is that Heritage Christian Fellowship exists to exalt the Lord, to edify the saints, and to engage the culture around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as simple as that. Now you can, you can build that out in a massive way. And there's a time coming where we're going we're gonna to actually, in between books at some point, I really want to teach Galatians after this because it's just going to be, it's a fun, I mean Paul says stuff that's just hilarious in Galatians. So, so I'm dying to get into there. But we may either, before Galatians or right after, just take a chunk of time and kind of go through really the core values of what makes this church what it is and the biblical foundation foundations for that. So that, that may be coming. But we started talking about this idea of kind of where are we going, where have we been, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and in doing that, I've spent a lot of time even reading a lot of what really successful and wise even business leaders or political leaders or world leaders throughout history have done. Um, and, and one of the things that they're talking about that I came, came across often was this idea of making regular assessments about where you are. In terms of where you want to be, where you've been, where you're going, just taking time to sort of just stop and assess where you are. Um, and th that's really good advice. The problem comes in in how do you assess where you are when you're a ministry, when you're the church of Jesus Christ compared to a business because your motives are different, your goals are different, and all these things. In the business world, for example, if you're trying to gauge progress or evaluate your success and where you're going, you might use revenue, obviously. I mean, that really is the bottom line, the bottom line, right? So, so they would look at things like revenue, there's customer base, you're succeeding if your customer base is growing. Um, others would look at things like longevity, just having a business that has stood through time and, and made it through seasons is important. Others would look at maybe number of franchises if you have that sort of business, or, or did we stay within budget? Maybe you're not so much a business, but maybe you're more project-oriented, so you, you uh, compare or uh, discern success based on did we, did we accomplish what we needed to do within the bounds that we were given to do it, and if we did, then we were successful. Well, how does a church do that? Now, I'm going to use that phrase a lot, talking about the church. And so it's really important right now that everyone understands from now on, the rest of the day, when I'm talking about church, I'm talking about us. And I don't mean just heritage. I'm talking about the people. Um, the church is not intended to be an organization. It is a collection of people. So if you say the church and we're evaluating the church, that means we're evaluating ourselves, each and every one of us in this context, right? So if the church is made up of the ministers of Jesus Christ, if everyone who is a believer in Jesus is called to minister the gospel, then how does the church manage that? And how does the church gauge progress or evaluate success? 
Well, there's a lot of stuff out there that people have written and that people will commend to you to be able to do just that. Some would say you need to just use, use numbers. And they'll say things like, if a church is healthy, healthy sheep naturally reproduce. So if your church is growing, then that means that you're successful. Well, that, that would be great for us. I mean, to be able to say, well, we're six years old. We've gone from 100 people to hundreds of people. Maybe we must be successful. That's fantastic. That'd be great to be able to do that. Uh, but numbers, well, it seems a little bit worldly. I know that in the Bible, when David counted his men, a bunch of people died. So we don't want to do that. It seems weird that you would use that as your method to evaluate success. Seems like right after that, your numbers are probably going to dip, you know what I mean, in a really bad way. So we, we don't want to do that. Well, someone say, well, no, don't number all of your people, just your converts. If, you're, if the church is converting people, then that's guaranteed to be success. And to some degree, that is absolutely true. Um, but I've also, my entire life, I've always been a part of large churches for whatever reason. The churches we grew up in were always big churches. The churches I've been on staff on have always been big churches. Um, and, and here's one thing that that has taught me, is that I've been on staff and have attended even throughout my life churches that might baptize 10, 20, 30 people a week. But what I've also learned is that that's not a, that can be a false number to lean on. Because just for example, if you had a church of 1,000 people and you baptized 30 people a week, then at the end of one year, you should have 1,500 people in your church. But in a lot of cases, what happens is people get baptized over and over and over, but the church numbers don't grow anywhere near to that increment. What actually happens is, we've seen through the years, people getting baptized for the second time, the third time, the fourth time. People looking at conversion or baptism as some sort of secret formula that if I do it right this time, it's going to fix all those problems that I've got and, and, and using it maybe even as a form of penance for sin, that if I do this, it'll make up for what I did the night before. Uh, or sometimes you have conversions that may seem very genuine, but then we know that following Jesus is hard. And, and even Jesus' own parable about the sower and the seed says that when the heat gets turned up, people tend to fall away. And so that can happen. Um, numbers just can be a really tricky gauge to just manage success. Well, I mean, you, you could use money. <laughs> you could. I mean, that seems really worldly for sure, right? I mean, the, the thing that Jesus taught, the love of money is the root of all evil. So to, to look at the financial success of your church seems like a really backwards way of doing that. Um, but you could also do, if you want to, you could use relationships. You know, that sounds more Christian, that sounds more sort of uh, grassroots, down-to-earth, re relational. How are the relationships doing? But just even as a ministry grows, if the church does grow, as ours has, for example, relationships just get difficult. I mean, it just gets hard to navigate some of those things. There's so many times where I'll find myself going, man, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. I wonder how they're doing and find out it may have been months or they might have been there last week. I just didn't see them. It just becomes really difficult to do that. So what do you do? Well, the Westminster Catechism. How many people grew up in a full-on, like, denominational, formal version of Christianity, whether it be Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist? A lot of people here. We have a lot of background. Okay. Now, keep your hand up if you have heard of a catechism before. A lot of you. Okay, good. Well, that makes that really easy. A catechism is a denominational tool that was put together by people years and years ago um, of being able to teach the faith to new people, new converts, new believers, those who are growing in the faith. It was a process, a curriculum, whatever you might call it, in order to teach the principles of your faith to those that come into your congregation. 
And one of the most famous ones in our cultural index is the Westminster Catechism. And it's fantastic. And th these have uh, just phenomenal uses. If you're an iPad user, for example, there's one online called, I believe it's called the New City Catechism. That's a free app that you can get. It's amazing. It has a, a version for children and for your family or a version for more adult or more deeper understanding. And it involves videos with pastors that you guys know really, really well. It's a great tool to walk your family through some of those kinds of things. But the Westminster Catechism is a pretty famous one. And in the Westminster Catechism, the way they laid it out is they would ask questions and then they give the answer to that question. And the first question of the Westminster Catechism is by far the most famous question in all of it. And many of you have heard this before. And the question is, what is the chief end of man? Or in other words, what is the, the ultimate purpose? What is the chief end or purpose of man? And its response is just as well known. The response to it is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is a fantastic answer to that question. And our job, our, the reason we're here is to glorify God, to bring glory to God, to reflect God, and to enjoy God and fellowship with him forever. That is the chief end of man. Very well known. Now the second question is so closely tied to it, it's disappointing that most people aren't aware of it and it gets nowhere near the notoriety. The second question is, what rule has God given us to direct us that we may glorify and enjoy him? So think about it. What's the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. All right? Then what rule or what measuring stick or what boundaries, principles, tools has God given us that we might accomplish that which we are here for so that we can glorify God and enjoy him forever? What rule has God given us? And the answer to it is this. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. In other words, this. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God, and the only standard, rule, boundary, uh, measuring stick, whatever you want to call it, that God has given us that we might accomplish that which God has given us to do is the scriptures themselves. So when a church, and I mean the people of the church, even when we as believers want to say, I want to assess where am I, how am I doing, the yardstick that God has given us is his holy scriptures. Well, in this particular passage right here, Paul is sort of doing just that, although he's really more answering critics that are saying his mission is not fruitful, that he's not answering his calling. He is not fulfilling what God's called him to do. He's been thrown under the bus by the very church that he planted because of an influx of hucksters that he will later refer to as super apostles, and he does that sarcastically. These men that come in claiming that, man, we have got it together. We have this understanding. And they have thrown Paul under the bus. They've said his ministry is off track. He doesn't know what he's doing. His teachings are wrong. This guy is a putz. You shouldn't be listening to him at all. He's a jerk. And what has ended up happening now is Paul's writing this letter back in response. And he's sort of defending his ministry by saying, look, this is how I know. I, this is what I'm called to do. This is where I am on track with these things. And that's where we come in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so in evaluating his ministry and also defending his ministry against these accusations, Paul does it in three different areas. Paul talks regularly about the context in which he does ministry. So if you're evaluating the ministry that you do for the Lord, you need to evaluate context. The second thing is the character of the minister. 
Very important. Character matters. Say that with me. Character matters, right? That's been a political thing over decades now. It's true. So Paul talks about the context of his ministry, the character of the minister, and then finally the content of the ministry. So we're just going to hammer these three things down real quick, and then we'll go watch Shark Week. Amen? So the first thing is this, the context of Paul's ministry. Context matters. Context matters. What are the first three rules of real estate? Location, location, location. Well, this comes into play with regards to not just biblical interpretation, which I've hammered on this one before, but the context in which you serve. So for example, uh, ministry in New York City is probably going to look significantly different than ministry in uh, South Dakota, right? It's probably going to be a little bit different. And if you're trying to compare numbers, especially if you're using that as your gauge for ministry, it really shows up why that's an error, erroneous way of evaluating ministry. Because to say, no, if your ministry is succeeding, if it's growing, well, what about that pastor who has slaved away for 30 years in a tiny little town and growth? He can't even imagine growth because there's no people there to grow in. He's just been faithful year after year after year, for that tiny little community that he's in. Who would dare call that guy unsuccessful because his community doesn't even have numbers that would allow growth? So obviously those two ministries are going to look very different. Tim Keller, for example, if you're not reading Tim Keller, you have no idea what you're missing. Phenomenal Christian author, probably the C.S. Lewis of our day. Ministers in Manhattan, New York, has a tremendous ministry there. But Manhattan, New York, if I was to say, okay, for Heritage, we're going to model everything that we do after what Tim Keller does because he is successful. So let's take everything he does, we're going to do it here. Well, that would be a foolish thing to try to do because our cultural context here could not be more different. He's in an area where the average person that they meet on the street has no clue about the gospel. Unbelievers surround them every step of the way. Our context is quite a bit different. We, even though we're in Oregon, this is way more Bible Belt here in Medford. Church on every corner. I mean, when I, I just asked you guys, how many of you guys have denominational religion and, or faith in your background? Hands shoot up everywhere. That doesn't happen in Manhattan where he's at. For us, it would be way more closer to go to the context of a guy like I mentioned last weekend, Matt Chandler down in Dallas, Texas, who is, is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's in an area that's the Bible Belt, church on every culture, and he deals with religion more than he does just straight up in your face immorality. And that, that's way more the, the issues that, that, if you will, dominate or plague ministry in our valley. They're just completely different. So context has to come into play. So where's Paul ministering as he writes this letter? It's stunning how relatable it is. Paul's writing to the city of Corinth, which was really sort of the, the vanity fair of his day. It was a very hip, urban, wealthy, uh, consumer-driven city. Now understand there were no natives in Corinth. It's like Medford. Everyone's from California, it seems like, right? But Corinth, even worse, because the city of Corinth had been all but wiped off the face of the earth by invasions years previously. And then the city was rebuilt by the Romans as a trade mecca, as an opportunity for people to, to do commerce geographically. It's very strategic in shipping and trade routes. And so this city was rebuilt by all immigrants, and so people from every culture, every background, every nationality, every religion all flocked to Corinth for one reason and one reason only, they came to make it. 
They came to make something of themselves. They saw business opportunity, growth industry. We're moving to Corinth, the land of opportunity, the land of promise. Give us your tired and huddled masses. That's Corinth. So it was a very commercially dominated city, a, a city that was absolutely driven by the almighty dollar. Melting pot, tons of different people, diversity, big time in Corinth. In addition, you had gross immorality. I mean, the very geographic landscape of Corinth is, is dominated by a mountain of which this city sits right at the base, referred to as the Acrocorinth. And on top of the Acrocorinth was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, goddess of love, or better said, goddess of lust. And there would be upwards of a thousand temple prostitutes working up here during the day, quote unquote, worshiping. And then as the night fell, they would make their way down from the mountain and invade the city of Corinth, bringing all of that promiscuity and sexual practices with it. So it was a city of huge sexual indiscretion and immorality, very much like we see going on in our culture today. Um, in addition to that worship, another very popular, if you will, god at that time, uh, and there was a temple there as well, is for the god Apollos, which was like arts and culture, very eclectic, very expressive, but also part of the worship practices there, there was a gigantic influence of homosexual activity. And so Corinth was a hotbed of homosexuality. In fact, there was a phrase that came out. It's sort of a slang term meant to throw the city of Corinth under the bus. It was the word Corinthianize. So if you had been Corinthianized, that meant you had left morals at the door. And you had moved in a most specifically sexually perverse or sexually liberated direction. That's the city that they're in. Highly artistic, eclectic, independent. We're here to make something of ourselves. Melting pot. Isn't it amazing? The more things change, the more they stay the same. And, and for us here in America, we're sort of in this, in this interesting time where um, our, our cultural values are absolutely changing. We're seeing our, our nation, its views of morality and religion and, and all of these things change right before our eyes, probably not in a direction that most of us are on board with, I'm going to imagine. We're seeing all this change. What can happen is we can start to just freak out and believe, man, we are, as the phrase says, we are headed to hell in a handbasket. It is over. We're in big trouble. This is nothing. No one's ever seen anything like this before. Well, on one hand, you're sort of right because Corinth isn't exactly an international mecca today. So you have a point that you could make. But on another hand, I would say, understand that we are not experiencing the difficulties we're experiencing as a culture today as first timers. The Gospels, the, these, this very letter of Corinthians right here was written into a culture that is almost identical to the type of the culture that we live in now. Oh, more primitive, I, I guess. Would we say less advanced? Maybe. But I don't know. We seem to somehow feel like we've always advanced beyond all the problems and difficulties and belief systems of those from centuries past. And it's just not true. We just have more gadgets. But it's very much the same. So on one hand, we can freak out about the cultural context that we're here, but, but on the other hand, we can go, you know what, this is a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago into a culture that's identical to ours. God has given us a yardstick. God has given us a rule, if you will. God has given us his word to help us navigate through situations just like this. 
And so people freak out, oh, it's so hopeless, I can't believe. Well, let's talk about numbers one more time. In 1990, surveys came out in 1990 that said 74% of Americans confessed to have having made a commitment to Christ. 1990, 74% of Americans claimed to have made a commitment to Christ. And at the time that that data came out, uh, most of the evangelical world held that up and said, revival is on the horizon, clearly. Look at all the people that have converted to Jesus. Man, our future is bright moving forward. And yet, is that what we've experienced? No, not at all. We haven't experienced that at all. But we can take hope and understand this. The future of Christianity, I can tell you today with absolute certainty, is very, very bright. For one thing, light shines brightest in the darkness. So we have an opportunity moving forward to shine in such a way that Christianity has not had the opportunity to shine in years previously. But, but even more than that, I can tell you this, you don't have to freak out because I've read the end. Have you guys read the end of this book? So, so the victory is assured. Darkness will lose. Amen? Have you guys ever noticed, has anyone taken a flashlight into a room and the darkness has covered the flashlight and chased it out of the room? Never. Light wins. Light wins. So when we see the things going on culturally, on one hand, we could evaluate the ministry or the effectiveness of the church in the world around us and and look at it and go, man, uh, I'm just so discouraged. Things aren't going really well. And we could use that as a yardstick against us. But please understand, man, we are being given by God opportunities as Christians to shine and do ministry in a way that, that we haven't had in a long, long time. Christianity is a growth industry moving forward. I assure you of that. There's going to be lots of potential clients. Amen? So that's the context part. What about the character of the minister? Well, it ties in really well. Let's look at verses 1 through 2 of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul goes through here and he gives some different delineations or aspects of what the character of a minister for God has. And the first one he does, which is very much related to what I just talked about, he says, number one, the minister of the gospel does not lose heart. We don't lose heart. I mean, know this, the very fact that he says we don't lose heart means that there are significant reasons available in which we could lose heart. This is not Paul being cheesy uh, greeting card Christian. That drives me nuts. That whole, like you you run into a guy who his house just burnt down, his wife left him, he lost his job, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And he's a Bronco fan and Seattle just crushed him. And you go, how you doing, man? And he goes, oh man, just God's blessing me. Are you sure? Like, I mean, I just want to go, are you sure? Because I, are, are you not hurting at all? How are you smiling? Like, don't fake that. And we've talked about suffering in general, about what people need to see is that we serve a God who walks us through difficulty and that it's not us who gets through it, but it's the grace of God who carries us through it, even when we're too weak to stand. So we can be honest about the reality that there are difficulties that come. And Paul, remember, is writing to a church that kicks him to the curb every chance that they get. I mean, they're throwing him under the bus over and over and over. And unlike me, he doesn't bail on them. My proclivity would be, dude, I've written three letters. I've visited you twice. I'm out. But Paul's like, I I don't lose heart. 
And there is much reason for him to lose heart. But he says, no, I'm hanging in there. I do not lose heart. And for us, we don't have to lose heart because number one, even when we get discouraged by ministry in the world around us, when darkness tries to extinguish light, we know it's not about us anyway. It's warfare that Jesus warned us about from the very beginning. In this world, you will have trouble. But then what does he say? Take heart for what? I have overcome the world. Past tense, it's done. The victory and the end is assured. The thing you struggle with, you will never struggle with it again when that day comes. That the pain that kills and that destroys, the, the tensions, whether it be in family, diseases, all of those things, their days are numbered. And no matter what American culture wants to do or any other culture in the world, no one trumps Jesus. That should have got more than two. <laughs> no one trumps Jesus. It's just true. So we don't lose heart. When people are discouraging to you, when people reject you because you stand for Jesus, when people say that your views or your morality is old-fashioned, you go, no, actually, you know what's just as old-fashioned? Your immorality. We see it in the scriptures as well. But my God is timeless and never changes. And his victory over sin and over my suffering and over your suffering is assured. Assured. So we don't lose heart. Number two, the minister of the gospel walks in integrity. He says here, we, verse two, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. In other words, this, in gospel ministry, there's no hocus pocus. There's no manipulation. There's no, let's trick people into the kingdom. There's no, how can we scheme people in? There's no even, how do we cheat the system even as a church or as Christians? There's just straight up, we walk in integrity. The, the way we save people, if, you, if I can even use that phrase, we all know what God saves, right? So no emails. But, but the way we do ministry is just as important as the ministry that we do. He says, we, we don't, we disgrace underhanded ways. We don't do any of those sorts of things. And, and Paul's writing this intentionally because he's already said in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17 that there's some hucksters in town. He puts it this way, we are not like many peddlers of God's word, but we are men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so we walk in integrity and we're honest. We don't feel like we have to hide certain things. We don't lie about who we are. We don't try to put up a front. We just say, this is who we are. We walk in integrity with how we handle everything, whether it be finances, any of those sorts of things. We disgrace underhanded ways, and we choose to walk in integrity. Number three, the minister of the gospel upholds God's word. He goes on to say, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. This is an important one. We need to sit here for just a minute. We don't distort. This is what this means. We don't distort God's word. We don't dilute God's word. This is huge. Okay, as I said, what's today? It's Shark Week, all right? So there's new, no, this is applicable. So there's, 
there, there was a news story this week that a lot of people for, that are part of a lot of these different um, oceanic research companies and scientists that love and study sharks and all this kind of stuff are upset with Discovery Channel um, for bringing us the joy that is, that is Shark Week. And the reason is, is they go, most of your programming has nothing to do with all the scientific data and all this kind of stuff. You just want to talk about shark attacks and you're portraying sharks as these man-eaters. I'm like, okay, did, did the shark eat the guy? <laughs> yes. All right. Just saying it like it is. I'm not going to tamper with And I mean, it is more interesting to us, let's admit. But, but there's this great uh, debate going on about Shark Week. But here's the core of the debate. What they're saying is how you present them matters. And what we need to do is we need to present, oh, I don't know, a softer, gentler great white. <laughs> That's what we need to do. A softer, kinder, gentler, great white. Now, we laugh at that, but here's the absolute reality. There are people everywhere saying, we need to present a softer, gentler Christianity. And so as a result, when the, the context we're in begins to close in and pressure begins to mount over different doctrinal truths that scriptures clearly portray, there is a push amongst many people that says, we need to dilute that message. So let's leave that part out. Let's explain that part away. Let's forget this particular part and, and let's see if we can do things, oh, maybe we can navigate them just a little bit differently. In particular, we're seeing this obviously with regards to gay marriage in our culture right now. This is happening to a great degree. Uh, coming up probably in early September, once all our summer stuff is over, we're going to take at least a week and, and just, just a, a standalone time and week and we're going to talk about this subject. This is a huge issue in our state and in our culture. And if there's an area out there um, that you could point to and say, this is going to cause big problem and difficulty for the church in America moving forward, that's it. No question. Anything else isn't even in second place. It's that. And this understanding of gay marriage. And so what's happening is, is people are attacking long-held, traditional, clearly written biblical beliefs regarding marriage. And, and here's the saddest thing. Some of the most vocal voices out there that are saying that our traditional understanding and belief regarding marriage in the Bible are coming from within the church. That's the saddest thing. Um, there's a book out there right now that's making some rounds, though. Its criticisms are, seem to be killing off some of its momentum. But there was a book written. It's called God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines, and, uh, where he writes and goes through all these different reasons why he believes the Bible not only makes room for homosexual marriage, but affirms and approves them. Came out after the fact, by the way, he himself is a gay Christian, so certainly some agenda going on in there. Um, but what happens in it is it's a gross misrepresentation, taking scripture horribly out of context. And over and over and over, you can go through these things that this guy is writing, and you're like, that's not what the word says. And the Bible is our only standard by which we glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so you, you can't change that. You can't tweak that. And look, it would be so much easier. I've had multiple times since I've been just pastoring this church in general where I've had uh, gay or lesbian couples come to me and ask if I would do their marriage. Um, and I've talked with them and had awesome interaction. We love everyone, gay or straight. Amen? Because Jesus loves everyone, gay or straight. Amen? 
He died to save you from your pride, you from your religion, you from your homosexuality, whatever the case may be, we love them all. So we, can, we, we had really civil and great discourse talking with one another, even about just our own convictions and how as strong as your convictions are for me to back away from mine, you would think that shameful, wouldn't you? And we, we talked through that and had fantastic conversation. Um, but in reality, the truth is this, it's out there and that's what's coming. And the temptation would be, the easy thing for me would be to go, you know, this is what's going to grow. This is going to be a problem area for the church. And if we want to protect our ministry, we should just tweak this and change it. And that's the pressure in the church out there today. I've even met with, this is probably for that next sermon, but and the people in the sun are like, then save it. But I have, I have met even with our attorney here in town about uh, what are the legal ramifications moving forward with the fact that we don't have church membership and yet perform weddings, but don't perform homosexual marriages. What is that going to do to us? And he said, it's going to leave you incredibly vulnerable in the very near future. And I, I said, what are you, and, and pushed on that. He said, I'm having this conversation with two to three churches a week right here in our valley. It's a big deal moving forward. And so the easy thing would be to go, then we'll just, for, just, there's more important things. Let's just back off of that. Maybe we were wrong. But here's the thing. First of all, when you dilute God's word even a little bit, now you've, you've put yourself on shaky ground with all of it. It's the slippery slope argument. People go, oh, that doesn't have to happen. It absolutely happens. You study the history of liberal interpretations of scripture, of liberalism in Christianity, you'll see. But, but even more than that, it's more even than like we want to protect our ground and, and draw our boundaries and, and all this kind of stuff, which is not our heart. But, but even beyond that, understand something. These are words of life to dying people. And if we take them away, they're still going to die. It doesn't matter how pretty we package this. I mean, in John chapter 6, Jesus' apostles and the, and the disciples in general, just people in general that are following him. Jesus moves away from like teaching. He, he would do the miracles and then say, don't tell anybody. And all this. And then he feeds the 5,000 and words getting out. And then Jesus makes this little shift. And he starts teaching some pretty hard things. And he suddenly starts talking about things like, you're going to drink my blood. You're going to eat my flesh. And all of these sorts of things, which in the cultural context of that day, these are shocking and horrific things for these Jewish people to hear. And so as Jesus is teaching, people were absolutely offended by what he was saying. And it says, when many of the disciples heard it, his teaching, John 6 says, this is, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And Jesus, knowing in himself that disciples were grumbling, said to them, do you take offense to this? Are you offended by the things that I'm saying? Is it a front to your flesh? And listen to what he says. He says this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, he says. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I'm not just throwing these words out as just some random rules that I want to put around everybody, and I'm not some galactic or cosmic killjoy. These are words of life that I'm trying to give you. Well, they still are bantering about all of this, and I don't want to get two people, people too fired up about this, because whenever you talk about Bible numbers, there's always those people that just go nuts with the Bible number stuff. But anybody know what the biblical number of six tends to represent? It's the number of man. And in John chapter 6, verse 666, if you want to get a 666, oh, six, six. but in John 6, 66, it says this, after this, 
many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. His words forced a decision. They weren't about, oh, I should ease off this because they might not follow anymore. His words forced a decision, follow or don't, but these are words of life. I won't dilute them. I won't take them back. Oh, I was just kidding about all that. Says they didn't follow him anymore. He didn't freak out. We got to change strategy. We're losing people. You know what he actually did? He pushes it. So then he turns to his 12 that are right there with him. And he said, do you want to go away as well? You guys, this is just words of truth. I'm not backing off of this. Do you want to turn away as well? And the response from Peter is what? Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of life. And this is the deal. When we say that we're sticking to biblical definitions of marriage or whatever the doctrine is here, it's not because we hate homosexuals or because we think what they do is gross or because we're trying to don't let the kids near them. They might get gay on them or any of that kind of like old school paranoia fundamentalist garbage. It's because the words that are in here are given that people might have life. And you and I have no words of life of our own. We have these And so when we change them, we have robbed people from the life that they desperately need. So we cannot dilute the scriptures. We cannot dilute the words. We can watch how we say them. Amen? Because they're they're not meant to beat people over the head and to cause condemnation and shame. They're there to give life. But like I said, we'll talk about that in September. But we stay on the word, number five, four. The minister of the gospel is not the star of the show. Look what Paul says, verse five. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Paul says, not here to build my following. I'm not here trying to proclaim myself. I am here to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and I, in your view, I am your servant. This is what Paul is here to do. The, the, reality of the, truth, the reality of the fact is this, that Christian ministers and servants are not here to build some sort of cult of personality or following unto themselves. It is impossible to build glory to yourself and direct glory to God at the same time. And our responsibility is to point people to Jesus. I mean, this is at the very, do you see how opposed this is to so many different areas of modern day um, evangelicalism in general? Tim Tebow? Like we like giant stars that we can all get behind and we can just cheer for and have this big dude that's just like our face. This is our guy. And it just doesn't work. On KDOV the other day, they spent an enormous amount of time, I found out, um, talking back and forth trying to prove why they all think Peyton Manning is a Christian. That's what they were doing. Well, because he likes this song, and then he said this one time, and he gave money to that. And, and, and the reason that we tend to do that is because we do have an absolute a fascination with um, just idols and stars and bigger-than-life figures. And we, we want that big name that we can all get behind and say, he's ours, as if we don't already have Jesus. And so that's what ends up happening. And I'll tell you, in, in, in our modern context right now, we're seeing this implode. Because megachurches built around cults of personality aren't doing real well right now. Whether you look in Florida, Seattle, different areas right now, there's people where an entire ministry and everything they do is built around just this one person, and we're seeing things go really, really badly. 
And, and this goes at the very core of what Christianity is. Christianity in its, its very core is a denial of self and an elevation of Jesus Christ. I mean, John the Baptist is the one, right? Isn't John the Baptist the greatest example of this? His ministry was the only show in town for a long time until Jesus shows up. And then his disciples are coming to him, John, what's going on, man? They're not following us anymore. They're following that guy over there. They're getting baptized by him. That's our gig. That's what we do. And what does he say? He says, I must decrease. He must increase. What John really is saying, I pointed people to Jesus. If they're going to him to follow him instead of me, I've done my job. And this is Paul too. Now Paul's speaking this again into a cultural context where people are, are, are being tempted by these hucksters to come in, you follow me, you follow me, you follow me. But even Paul says, with humility, follow me, what? As I follow who? Christ. So that's the, the gauge for our ministry is not what preacher we follow or what guy we listen to or what book we know or read or any of that. The gauge of our ministry is the fact that Jesus Christ is the star of our show. God historically uses nobodies. I remember sitting um, in, in a teaching up at Western Seminary and hearing a guy talk about this very thing. And he said, so many times in Christianity, we want that next great movement, that, that next great miracle, that next great uh, uh, revival to happen. And we look to these giant churches as the ones that are going to lead the way for that. But he said, just historically, and he said, I, I say this as a pastor of a quote unquote mega church. I don't think it's coming from any of us. Because from a biblical standpoint, God uses nobodies. He uses the Gideons who say, I'm the least of the least in my family. He said, if you want to see a work of God, I'll, sometimes I wonder if our size is actually working against us. Because we might end up with the glory as opposed to God. And it's not that God is just some uh, braggart or wants all the attention. But look, no matter who you are, no matter how great the person is, this pastor especially, we're going to let you down. Your wife is going to let you down. Your husband is going to let you down. Your hero is going to let you down. It happens. But Jesus Christ and hope in him will never leave you ashamed. He's the only source of life. And so it is a source of grace to us and to each other and to the lost world that God gets all the glory and not us. Because we'll buckle under that pressure. Happens all the time. So that's the character of the minister. Let's close out quickly with the content of the ministry and finish out the passage. Chapter 4, verse 6. Really, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The content of the ministry is one and the same. If you ever feel like Jeff's just saying the same thing over and over, uh, it's just the truth because there's really the content of the gospel or the content for ministry is given to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same. Uh, D.A. Carson might be the most preeminent uh, New Testament theologian of our time. And in a lecture once that we were at, he said this. He said, if there's anything that 25 years of teaching the scriptures has taught me, it's the understanding that no one's going to remember all the stuff that I teach for the last 25 years. He said, but they will remember what I'm excited about, and that better be the gospel. That is the core. That is why we are here, to declare Jesus Christ as Lord, as the one who sets captives free 
The one who, who lifts the veil and the light pierces into the darkness. And to understand that people that don't know Jesus right now, they're deceived. I meant to touch on this actually earlier, but let me just say this right now. Um, he talks about this, about those who don't understand they've been deceived by the, the God of this present age. What we can tend to do when we see the culture around us pushing against us is to villainize them and go sort of into an attack mode. That happens all the time, especially um, with regards to a lot of um, political television or, or some of those sorts of things. Like we begin to start villainizing people on the other side. But the Bible paints a little different reality. The Bible says, you know what? Here's the deal. They're deceived. They're deceived. They don't have the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. We can preach the gospel. We can talk about marriage and its fruit and why it's designed and how it should be. And we can make the most valid argument in the world, but there's a lot of people out there that doesn't matter how clear you say it. They're not going to get it because they've been deceived. And so to villainize and attack them, call them names, call them ignorant, stupid, whatever you want to call it, it is just a foolish thing. What would be a better idea is to pray for them because it's a spiritual battle, not an intellectual intellectual one. And when the Spirit of God comes into the life of someone, no matter what it is that they're caught up in, it will open their eyes. And I don't care what their philosophical background is, even what their own personal uh, sexual orientation is. When the Spirit of God grabs you, you're His, and everything changes. Ask Paul. He was killing Christians until Jesus came. And so instead of posturing ourselves in this antagonistic way against the culture around us and just pointing fingers and calling names, maybe once we've declared the gospel and it's been rejected, and when we're called names for our belief, when they call us backwoods and old and fundamentalist and all those kind of things, maybe a better posture is to just go to our knees and pray for the people around us. To be thankful for the grace of God that Paul has put, or that, that God has poured his grace into us. He even says at the beginning of this passage, this ministry has been given us by the mercy of God. Just to be thankful that God has opened our eyes. And then to pray that God will open theirs. I mean, I pray for people sometimes that God would take them just like God took Paul. Like, just take them, Lord. You've done that. Just show up, blind them for a while if you gotta, but take them. Because they don't see, and they're lost, and they're deceived, and they're dying. And rather than being angry and pent up and wanting to fight back against that, that should break our heart to see how Satan's got a hold of people and how people have believed lies. And it should drive us to be more diligent with the truth of the gospel, because the truth will set them free. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to the, everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Just say, the only thing that's going to save them is the gospel. And so how should we go about that? How should we approach that? What should a church do? What should the content of the church's ministry be? I mean, we, we could do a lot of stuff where we go, you know what, the best thing for us to do when we see families falling all over the places, let's make it our emphasis here to just build the family. Let's just start just family stuff all the time. We'll preach every Sunday about family dynamics and we'll talk about relationships and all those kind of things. We'll do that every week. Those are good things, right? The Bible talks about those things. Those are good things. But you know who's doing that really well right now and nailing it? Mormons. And those aren't words of life. Our ministry must always be built on the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that he came to save wretches like you and I, and that his grace is sufficient to save every single other person in that valley out there. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gospel. Lord, we thank you first that the ministry that you've given us has been solely by your grace. Lord, when I think about your grace and mercy, even in my own life, Lord, I am amazed. For Lord, I am not deserving by a long shot that the king of glory would lay his life down for mine. Absolutely not. But I am so thankful. I am so grateful for your mercy in my life. Lord, I am thankful that your grace covers us all. That love has covered a multitude of sins. And I'm grateful, Lord, that you have chosen me to be on your team. Lord, I'm grateful for the ministry of being able to proclaim your gospel. And I pray, God, for every single one of us, for we are all ministers wherever we are. May we be faithful to that calling. Lord, may we understand the context of the places that we serve. But Lord, may we walk with character and integrity. May we stand firmly on your word. May we refuse to dilute it or be ashamed of it. May we trust your word and your gospel to do the work that you promise it will do. Lord, don't let us fall into the trap of thinking that we have to package things in such a way for people to respond. Or that we have to change your word for people to hear us. May we rely on you and your tried and true method. The proclamation of your gospel to a world that so desperately needs you. Lord, even in this place, there are some that I'm sure are not followers of Jesus. I pray, God, you would take them. I pray, God, that hearts would be surrendered to you, lives laid down, that we would recognize you as the King of glory, Lord of heaven and earth, and Savior of our souls, that we would renounce self and look to you with all of our heart. I pray, God, you would create humility within your church. I pray, God, against any sort of personality cult or, or any sort of glory for me or anyone else. May you get all glory for everything that is ever done in this church. May you be high and lifted up. We are thankful for your mercy in our lives. You all stand. Let's sing. Before we get started, actually, I just want to let you know, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, this is the day. Today is the day of salvation. So there's going to be some men and women over here in this gravel area over there um, after service that would love to pray with you. If you're a believer and you're going through some stuff, whether it be coming to the elders for prayer for healing, maybe an employment issue, whatever it is that you're dealing with, men, come. This is what the elders of the church are put in place to do, is to pray with one another. We'll be right back here. would love to be able to pray with you and meet you. But listen, you who is not following Jesus... You who don't know Jesus, I beg of you, he alone has the words of life. And in our culture too, it's kind of difficult. I was talking about this with our staff this week, that you know when you're, when you're trying to prevent a disease, when they give you that, uh, what's the word that they give? They give you the shot. What do you call that? The uh, you, Not all at once, I can't understand you. What is, immunization. When they give you those immunization shots, what they're actually doing is giving you just a tiny little amount of the actual disease, right? You guys all know this. It's just enough of the disease to keep you from getting it. 
And the cultural context that we live in, especially in this valley, there's a lot of people that have just enough of Jesus to prevent them from actually understanding all that Jesus came to do. We can be completely inoculated to the full call of the gospel and understanding of who he is and why we need him because we grew up in Sunday school or VBS. It's bigger than that. It's more important than that. And so if there's any ounce or shred of doubt in your mind about where you're going, I'm going to sound old school here. If you do not know where you would end up if you were in a car wreck on the way home, please give your life to Jesus. Just give up. Surrender. And understand that he is the king of kings and that he gave his life to save you. There's going to be men and women here. You come pray with them. Don't mess around with this. It's a big deal. But come to Jesus today. And the rest of us, let's worship him that he took us. Amen.